Last week I was on my way home coming from Kendall down to Porter Square on the red line and I noticed sitting across from me on the train was a guy with a book open in his lap. Not altogether an uncommon sight as we well know, except that I noticed the guy was somewhat aggressively marking the book up. Pen in hand, he's underlining multiple lines per page. He's circling all kinds of words on the page, jotting multiple sentences in the margin of the book. And I'm kind of watching this scene, and he probably made it through a page or two while we were on the train. And so I became curious, as one would, what book is this guy reading? And much to my surprise, it wasn't a work, a best-selling work of nonfiction filled with these sort of axioms, truths, these life hacks, and these kind of punchy one-liners worthy of the underline, you know? He kind of shifts the book, and I realize that he's reading a novel. He's reading Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, and he is going at it. (laughs) As I'm watching him, I'm wondering and kind of mulling it over in my mind, I wonder if my friend, and no judgment here, I'm a fan of the active reading process, so no judgment, but I'm wondering if my friend, in in light of pressing in on the details of Dickens' work, is he able to assess or keep in mind, or does he already know the bigger story? As he's honing in on the details, underlining, circling, focusing in on the details, does he know what point, what story Dickens is trying to tell? So I didn't have great concern for my friend, and about the time that I realized that the weirder part of the episode was not him marking the book up, but me thinking so much about it, I peeled back. And I began to think about the context that we see surrounding so many of Jesus' earthly activities throughout the book of Matthew. And as we look at the book of Matthew, as we've seen months and months that we've been preaching through this book, we've seen Jesus teaching, we've seen Jesus healing, we've seen Jesus instructing those who follow him, interacting with those who don't believe him. We've seen Jesus doing all of these particular things. And we know, you and I know, that they're all set and cast within a bigger picture larger story. And so I'm wondering on the train that day if my friend is missing the forest for some of the trees, I'm wondering if that same concept might not apply to some of the people we see surrounding Jesus and even to us as we zone in on, hone in on the details of Jesus's life in the book of Matthew. As we've been preaching throughout all of these episodes of miraculous doings about his greatness, his worth, his authority, There's a bigger picture and a bigger story that we ought to be mindful of. And what continues to rise to the surface, particularly as we get into the section of Matthew that we're in now, what continues to sort of bubble up to the surface is the question, the issue of Jesus's authority. And what we see over and over again reiterated in the book of Matthew is that Jesus's authority is not merely humanly derived. It's not merely humanly derived that Jesus is the one who is heaven sent. That Jesus is the one who is heaven sent. More specifically, in our passage today, we're going to see this emphasis, that in light of Jesus's authority, that we are to demonstrate the fruit of true faith and true repentance. In light of Jesus's authority, we are to demonstrate the fruit of true faith and true repentance. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me today to Matthew 21, via Matthew 21. If you don't have a Bible today, you're welcome to use one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. You'll see on the way out a table in the back that says free Bibles. We would love for you to pick one up on your way out. 
As you turn to the book of Matthew, you'll see that the larger number there are chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are verses. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 21, and we'll begin today in verse 18, reading through 32. Matthew 21, 18 through 32. You can read along silently as I read the passage aloud. In the morning, as he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but ever, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. 23, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And where and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son. He asked, said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. We see this emphasis in the passage as mentioned that in light of Jesus' authority, we are to demonstrate the fruit of true faith and true repentance. And we're going to look at today's passage in two parts. First, we'll see Jesus' authority as the basis for true faith. Jesus' authority as the basis for true faith. And secondly, we're going to see Jesus' authority to offer real forgiveness. Jesus' authority to offer real forgiveness. So in looking at the passage, we want to consider the background of Jesus' actions. At first glance, if we were to plug this story about a fig tree, Jesus passing by a fig tree and cursing it, it might come across as a little odd. We want to grant that. And so we tiptoe back into, lean back into the context of the passage and consider Jesus' surroundings, the backdrop of his actions. He's just, if you'll remember, Curtis preaching the passage last week, he's just cleansed the temple. And we see all kinds of actions alluding to the reality that what Jesus is doing is pointing out stark inconsistencies between what the religious leaders and others like them profess to believe and how they actually live. Jesus is pointing out the inconsistency between what people profess to believe and how they're actually living. He is expecting there to be fruit. 
evidence of true belief and true repentance, but he finds none. This begins to explain some of the images we see as Jesus now returns to Jerusalem and passes by the fig tree in verses 18 through 22. Read it with me again. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So Jesus sees the tree. And contrary to its intended function, contrary to the expectation, reasonable expectation, that it would bear fruit, it's fruitless. We find that in another portion of the passage that in season... The tree might not have even been ready to bear fruit at this time. And so Jesus is plucking this as sort of a a, a model teaching. We might say an illustration. And he's using this for a greater purpose. He's using this for a greater point. Jesus is seeing the tree, not acting according to its intended function, contrary to the expectation that it would bear fruit, that it's fruitless. It isn't fulfilling its intended purpose or function. Now, to help understand the picture here, we want to lay this image of the fig tree on top of some of the contextual pictures that we've been seeing here. We want to lay this image of the fig tree on top of images such as the temple in last week's passage. Here you have the temple, a place where righteous activity is to be happening, where worship of the one true God is supposed to be going on, and yet what Jesus finds there are money changers using the temple for ill-intended purposes, for gaining profit, not doing what it's intended to do. So we take the image of the fig tree, we lay it on top of this image of the temple, and we begin to have a clearer understanding of what Jesus is after. We take this image of the fig tree too, and we might lay it on top of the history of the whole nation of Israel. A people who at this point in the gospel have been given every reason to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Every reason to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And yet they do not. They don't. They disobey and they fail to bear fruit in keeping with true faith and true repentance. As we consider these images, we get nearer to what Jesus is intending in approaching the fig tree and this demonstration of his authority. The fig tree then is a symbol of those who have everything needed to now demonstrate true belief in who Jesus is, and yet they don't. Jesus' reaction to the fig tree and cursing it as it wilts reminds us, his disciples and us, that there is consequence for both the rejection of Jesus and for this sort of rank hypocrisy that we see that characterizes their culture and that, if we would grant, characterizes many of our lives today. There's consequence that there will not always be time and opportunity to make this true, this genuine profession Jesus' broader point here is brought into view by the rest of the passage. Jesus' broader point here is that his disciples, those who follow him, should fulfill their intended purpose. He uses the example of the fig tree to make a broader point about faith. We see that in the passage. He's telling his disciples to not be like the fig tree, to bear fruit. And the fruit here he has in mind is faith. We see the broader discussion and a few holes of this account filled out in Mark chapter 13, the same narrative, and Peter, and upon seeing the tree wilt in that instance, exclaims, Rabbi, the tree is withering, to which Jesus replies directly, have faith in God. The tree is withering, have faith in God. 
Not only is Jesus commanding that his disciples have faith, he's also holding up his authority and himself as ample evidence and as good reason why we can have faith in him. He's powerful. He's authoritative. And Jesus here in the passage in Matthew connects faith here directly to the content and the confidence of our prayers, that our faith will be demonstrated in the confidence with which we pray and in the content of our actual prayers. So let's see how he does that in verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you would not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And the broader point here related to faith, the broader point is that the fig tree here barely scratches the surface of what God can do. Barely scratches the surface of what God can do. Using a bit of hyperbole or exaggerated language here, Jesus begins to paint a picture. We should note here that in using the imagery of mountains being moved, Jesus isn't referring to moving actual mountains. Rather, he's making a statement. What seems impossible for man is actually possible with our God. And this begins to shape and inform both what his followers pray and the confidence with which they pray. And so too with you and I today. There are things in this life that are wildly beyond our control. Wildly beyond our control. If we were honest about it, if we had a bit of a conversation today, we would grant that most things in our lives are wildly out of control. Instead of leading us to despair, such things provide opportunity for us to direct our gaze and our requests to God in prayer, keeping two things in mind. Knowing that things are wildly out of our control, we are to express our concerns, our fears, our worries, our requests to God in prayer, keeping these two things in mind. First, to the point of the passage, God is capable of doing anything that we ask. God is capable of doing anything we ask. God is able. He is able to do the unthinkable. There is no limitations to his power, his authority, his wisdom. We can ask God anything, and we ought not doubt his ability to fulfill the request. But secondly, keeping that in mind, we ought to know that the answers God gives are not always immediately understood. God can answer any request. The answers God gives are not always immediately understood. We want to note here in the passage that the kind of faith and the kind of doubt Jesus is speaking of is not faith or doubt concerning the request itself, such that if you believe in a particular outcome enough, strongly enough, that that will come true. The emphasis is not on the request. And this is what undergirds much of what we call the prosperity gospel in our day, that the quality of our faith is what's most important that the quality of our faith is what's most important, that simply by having strong enough faith, that simply by not doubting too much, I can have whatever it is, whatever request it is. 
The true tragedy that results from hundreds, thousands of people being influenced to think this way is not only is one's confidence now put in him or herself, but that their hopes divert so drastically and so quickly away from God and his purposes. Basing the presence of positive answers to prayer in our life on the quality of our faith can be profoundly disorienting. And the truth is, perhaps it's been that way for you. If I believe strong enough, I'm going to get what I ask. If I don't doubt too much, I'll get what I requested. The question remains, and you know this experientially, and I do as well, what happens when the request isn't granted? Everything within that setting becomes fragile. It's profoundly disorienting. And so we need to be reminded here that the faith and doubt Jesus aims at in his teaching concerns not the quality of our faith or its strength, but its object. Its object. Do you believe that God is capable? Do you believe that God is able to grant any request, that he is big enough, strong enough, sovereign enough, that if he chose to, he could grant any request? This is where the confidence in our prayers lies. We ought to have a category, and hear this today, we ought to have a category of things in our life that are absolutely beyond our control and that absolutely need God's intervention and his help. We ought to have a category for things in our life, big things that we're asking God for because it's not getting done any other way. That should be common for us lest we spend our lives only ever involved with things that we feel we can safely control. Your God is capable. Our God is able. We can ask God anything. And yet, alongside, we are faced with the reality that when we go to God and we ask for anything in prayer, he doesn't always say yes. He doesn't always say yes. You and I, we know this experientially. Some of you, no doubt, have felt the pain, the disappointment, the despair of having months-long, years-long requests of the Lord that seemingly go without answer. And so how do we navigate now this category of what seem to be unanswered prayers? The truth of the matter is we could fill multiple sermons on this topic, multiple sermon series on this topic. Suffice for now, a couple of guidelines and things to, put, to consider. Scripture provides some buffer for our understanding. We see frequently throughout the New Testament that audacious prayer, such as the prayer that Jesus is talking about here, is often paired with the purposes and the will of God, such as in 1 John 3, and we saw this earlier in Matthew 17 as well. Praying in line with God's will is a significant aspect of prayer, and that God's will informs God's answers. Something to consider. In addition, unanswered prayer forces us to grapple with holding in tension the reality of God's sovereignty, our belief in God's sovereignty, and our limited understanding of what's best for our lives. There's an actual tension here. I believe on the one hand that God is sovereign, powerful, able, and yet I also kind of have this sneaking feeling that I know what is best for my life. And these are the two things that we hold in tension as we consider unanswered prayer. For our part, my wife and I have prayed the same request over and over 
and over and over again for the better part of a decade. This past August celebrated 10 years of marriage and overjoyed by that fact. And there's not been a single year, month, week, day that we've not prayed for biological children in our lives. Over and over and over again, requesting, asking the Lord to grant this gift. Not seeking to diminish our pain or suffering or the questions that we have in that context and related to that issue in our lives. A friend once came to me and I was sort of processing these things out loud with him. And he asked this question. He said, Mike, can you comprehend the goodness of God in the absence of this gift? And what he was saying is this gift isn't granted, it's not there. Do you have a category, Mike, for the goodness of God still? And I thought about it for a second and the answer then, as it is now, was yes. I can think of a thousand ways the Lord has been good and faithful in our lives reflect on those and dwell on those and I think about those. So is not the converse also true? That if we were to praise God as sovereign and good for the giving of a good gift, is he not still sovereign and good when that gift is withheld? I began learning an important lesson in those days and still to this day I'm learning it, that the unanswered prayer ought not be a reflection then on God's character. It doesn't change who God is. It's not a reflection on God's faithfulness to us, his goodness, his power, his authority. Instead, in moments when hope languishes, and hear me, hope languishes, it serves as a prompt for us to consider what else the Lord might have in store. That his ways and thoughts, despite our tendency to think otherwise, are actually better than our own. Thus, we have all the more reason to trust him all the more reason to trust him. Truly, and hear this today, if we have a God who is big enough, powerful enough, sovereign enough that we can ask him literally anything, if he's that big, that powerful, that sovereign, we can ask him anything, then we have a God who is big enough, powerful enough, sovereign enough to trust with any answer or any outcome. If we believe on the one hand that he is able then it's consistent to believe that he can have reasons beyond our understanding. And this is the reality. And therefore, we can believe all the more in him. There is yet something holy about the man, woman, and hear this today, about the man, the woman, the child of God, who says, though I still suffer, though I still have not, yet I still believe in the goodness, the mercy, the sovereignty of my God. And so we see here as we lean on Jesus' authority, we lean on Jesus' authority as the basis for true belief because we know there are purposes and ways higher than our own. That we are to bear fruit in keeping with faith, the faith that comes along and guides us in asking big things of God and being okay with answers that he gives. We are to bear fruit in keeping with faith and that, fr- faith, or that fruit is demonstrated in the content, what we're asking, and in the confidence, how we ask, and our trust with whatever answer he provides. We see here in the passage too, not only are we to bear fruit in keeping with faith, but we're also to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're also to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So point number two, we said at the outset, is Jesus' authority to offer real forgiveness. 
that in the act of repentance, Jesus, when we come to him, is able to offer real forgiveness. In verse 23, we see Jesus re-entering the temple. And keep in mind, shortly before this scene, as he's re-entering the temple in Matthew's narrative, Jesus is flipping over the tables of the money changers. And so this is just like Jesus, is it? One day, he's flipping over the tables. The next day, he's just teaching, right? Jesus is sitting in the, t- in the temple teaching. He's effectively ushered in a new era of temple activity. We talked about this a little bit last week as Curtis painted the picture of how Jesus replaces sort of temple requirements. But he's re- ushering in a new era of temple activity centered not on the profit of man as we see the temple being used, but on the redemption of man by God. Temple activity begins to look altogether different, along with most other things uh, around Jesus. And the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, begin to take notice. As Jesus is now teaching in the temple, they approach him and they challenge him based on the source of his authority. So read along with me in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Rather than giving a direct answer, Jesus returns their question for a question. If they want to discuss authority, he'll do that, but not in the way that they probably expect. In verse 24, Jesus answers them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And so Jesus here points to the baptism of John, an event we see earlier in the, in Go, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3, and he has in mind here John's whole ministry, his message, when he asks of these leaders, was John's baptism from heaven or was it from man? The example given, John's baptism, if you'll remember, was one of the most important events signifying Christ's arrival as the long-awaited Messiah. And if you'll remember for a moment, John's message in coming was that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he urged the people hearing his message to repent and to believe, to repent and to have faith. As the fulfillment of John's prophetic word in that day, Jesus arrives on the scene and he's baptized by John. We also see in the Matthew 3 narrative, and perhaps you remember this, groups of unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees gathering around as John baptizes others. John calls them, maybe you remember this, a brood of vipers, And he addresses them rather pointedly and urges them not to rely on their man-centered confidence and authority, but to repent and to believe, to repent and have faith. And so the proclamation was made. Jesus is the one who was to come. Jesus is the one who has come to forgive sins. All heavenly authority had been given to him with regard to his human nature and his earthly ministry. Jesus is the one sent from heaven. And that being so, in Matthew 21, Jesus' question for the chief priests and elders in the room is essentially this. Do you now believe that? Jesus is the one sent from heaven. Do you now believe that? The leaders discussed it amongst themselves in the narrative, realizing that if they were to say John's baptism, the message of John's ministry, came from heaven, then they would be held accountable for their unbelief. If they truly believed that this all was from heaven, then they were certainly guilty of not heeding John's call to repent and to believe. 
On the other hand, if they were to say that John's baptism was merely from man, the crowds gathered would be offended because they esteemed John as a prophet from God. Many of them believed. Jesus has backed the leaders here into a trap of their own making. Seeking to catch Jesus in a bind, these leaders have now bound themselves, and they have to confront reality. We see in the next verse that they plead ignorance. We do not know, they say in verse 27. And Jesus refuses to answer their initial inquiry. Essentially, in saying, I will not tell you then the answer to your initial question, Jesus is implying, you already know. And you know that you already know. One commentator on this passage, D.A. Carson, observes that the leaders here raise the question of Jesus' authority. And Jesus raises the question of their fittedness to even address the matter accurately. What's your authority, Jesus? I'll answer your question with a question and assess rightly your fittedness to even judge these matters accurately. To Jesus, the religious leaders are like those who have the form of godliness, but who deny or don't have access to true power, to true authority. They truly don't believe. They're fig trees that bear no fruit. Alongside, if we were to peel back from the content of the conversation, just for a moment, kind of observe this as onlookers, we want to note here in this passage how burdensome the whole conversation feels. The leaders come to Jesus with so much pretense, hoping to trap him in his words, ask the right question, prove him wrong. They're so preoccupied with finagling this situation to their own liking, to have their own way and appease themselves that they are missing the very thing, the very one who could deliver them from all their distress and all their worry. They're missing Jesus' authority to truly forgive because of their own pride. They're missing the forest for the trees. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, if they were to come simply, humbly before the Lord, they might realize that the one before them not only has authority from heaven, but that authority has been given to him such that he is the only one who is able to truly forgive their trespasses. The one they are seeking to ensnare is the one who can set them free. Perhaps you're here today and that's what this has often felt like to you. That coming to Christ would feel for you like a net loss. That there are too many hurdles to leap over, too much you'll need to change about your perspective or life or give up. Submitting to any other authority feels a lot like losing control. Others may be here and feel as if you are on the complete opposite end of that spectrum. You may be at rock bottom. Nothing else to offer, nowhere else to turn. And we want to grant that, and to both, as we'll see, the invitation is the same. To come to Christ. To come to Christ with all your burdens and everything, or come to Christ with your nothing at all. And to find in him all that you'll ever need. To come to Christ with your burdens and everything, or come to Christ with your nothing at all. And find in him all that you'll ever need. 
Jesus describes in the latter part of the passage here two types of people who receive that very invitation. Verses 28 and the first part of 31, Jesus asked, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of the father, Jesus asks. Jesus asked, who do you think does what the father here desires? The one who, in his obstinance and stubborn refusal, says he will not go, but then changes his mind and goes? Or the one who eagerly professes, I'll go, and does not? The one who changes his mind and does what the Father commands, or the one who is content merely to pay lip service? The religious leader's answer in the next part of 31 there, the first, and though it's an indictment on their own situation, they're exactly right. What is more here in the rest of the passage, we see that Jesus says that those who embody the first kind of response, the humble response to Jesus' authority, are the ones we likely least expect. The religious leaders here who had the corner of the intellectual and religious market are lagging behind in change of heart. But notice for whom Jesus says that was not the case. From the rest of 31 and to the end. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your, afterward change your minds and believe him. On the one hand here, the indictment of the religious, on the religious leaders and those like them is clear. You saw it. You had every reason to believe I am who I say I am. You had every reason to believe that I'm the one sent from heaven. You saw it, and you still didn't change your mind. And on the other, in contrast, the humble admonition here of Jesus' authority, ability to offer real forgiveness by the tax collectors and prostitutes is astonishing. And I know we hear that example kind of pushed forth in these settings often, but I don't want to look too easily past it. It's astonishing. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, those who socially speaking have very little to credit to their account in terms of religious credentials or worthiness to be in the presence of God, are now based upon Jesus' authority to offer real, true forgiveness. They're welcomed in. This is amazing. The tax collectors, those who probably feel like coming to Christ would be for them a net loss like they'll need to reorient their lives far too drastically, that following Christ could require too much for the tax collectors who earnestly, sincerely considered the love demonstrated toward them in Christ and the authoritative call to repentance, the prospect of not following Christ was far more costly. For the prostitutes, those who likely felt they had nothing to bring, to Christ to warrant his gaze, his attention, his love, his mercy. The call to repentance meant for them true forgiveness, everlasting satisfaction, real fulfillment 
and true peace. A friend of mine likes to remind us that in Christ's coming, that the one who had everything became nothing so that those who had nothing could have it all. The one who had everything became nothing so that those who had nothing could have it all. So the reality of our sin debt is the great equalizer, isn't it? That no matter background or story, socioeconomic, ethnic, stage of life, age, whatever qualifier we might put on life, the reality of our sin debt before God is the great equalizer. And the invitation is the same, to come to Jesus, to lay down whatever pretense or reason we might have not to embrace his authority and power to save, whatever reason we have for not receiving the offer of his forgiveness and grace, and to bear fruit in keeping with faith, in keeping with repentance. This morning, I wanted to draw out two points of application to consider in response to what we've heard today, answering the question, considering the question, what might bearing this kind of fruit in our lives look like as we seek to move out together and walk through those doors and then not leave what we've learned here but apply it to our lives? What would bearing this type of fruit of true faith, true repentance look like? And I've got two simple. The first is this. So we bear fruit in keeping with true faith is that we would pray big prayers and that we would trust God with the answers. That we would pray big prayers. That we would have a category for things in our life that absolutely need God's intervention and help and that we would go to him and make that request. And then as we're given the answer, we would grow in our ability to trust God knows what he's doing. We'll find in doing so, in praying big prayers that require God's intervention, that the Spirit helping us, that our faith will strengthen over time. And this is the great hope that us together and as individuals, this is the great hope that that trust will become for us, that trust in God will become for us more of a natural reflex. That when given the opportunity, the choice between worry or trust, that I'll trust God. That this will be the sort of default. Is it now? Not sure. Will it ever be so perfectly? Not sure. Is that what we're striving to- toward? Certainly. The trust will become the natural reflex of our hearts. And this is evidenced in the content and the confidence of our prayers. We pray big prayers and we trust God with the answers. Number two, in keeping with bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. We come to him freely for the unbeliever and the believer in the room. We come to him freely for salvation and irregular acts of confession and repentance without pretense. Without pretense. If there's something in our minds, in our hearts that's prohibiting us from coming to God, trusting him in the act of confession, repentance, distrusting his ability to truly forgive, that he has truly forgiven. We want to lay that down. We're no longer threatened by Jesus' authority or what that might mean for our lives. Trust him with it. So we bring all of us to him and we come into his presence expecting mercy that only he can give. 
We pray big prayers and we trust God with the answer. We come to him freely for salvation, regularly confessing our sin, repenting without pretense.